All fears vanish in the light of His truth. All false fears vanish in the light of His truth. Wow. Let's pray together. Most holy God of all creation, Father of all who have been adopted through the vicarious, sacrificial, atoning, substitutionary death of our Lord Jesus Christ, we say hallelujah. You are worthy to be praised. You are worthy to be adored. You are worthy to be worshipped, Father. And we, in all of our unworthiness, in all of our, as the prophet Isaiah would say, undoneness, all of the woe is me, we can rejoice that You have, Father, placed Your perfect righteousness upon us in Christ. And You, Lord, make all things new and right. Father, as we turn to Your Word today, in this most high and holy moment, God, we ask, as I always ask, that You give us eyes to see. Lord, that You will give us ears to hear. And that, Father, You will loosen our stubborn and enslaved wills to rightly respond to the voice of truth. Lord, speak for me. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen and amen. Well, uh, I'm sure that you guys are familiar with uh, the concept of an October surprise. Have you ever heard that phrase before? October surprise. It's, it's actually a political term. It's usually referred to some crisis or event that happens in October before an election in November that would alter and change the course of that election. Well, today, on October the whatever today, see my mind's already gone blank. Today, it's October, I do know that. (laughs) On today, I have an October surprise for you. Now, I'm not talking politics I don't mean anything political when I say that. I'm not about to tell you something that's going to alter the course of the November election. But it's October, and I have a surprise, so take your Bibles and turn to 1 John. 1 John chapter 4. Now that's the surprise. You're supposed to go, oh yeah, it's been two months. We were working through 1 John verse by verse. We were working through, we worked through chapter 1, we worked through chapter 2, we worked through chapter 3. We got into chapter 4, the end of July. And then all of a sudden we took off on courses that went all different directions as the Spirit of God gave us direction. But the Spirit of God has planted us again in 1 John chapter number 4. I want to camp out in um, verse 9, verse 8. In verse 9, well actually verse 9 and 10, but I want to read to you beginning at the end of verse 8. And I think you'll see why. But in chapter 4, 
Um, the end of verse 8 is God is love. Theos es agape. That God is love. This, in other words, that, that phrase, it describes the essence of who God is. Now, God is more than love. There are several statements of who God is. But right here in this text, in this passage, the light of the Spirit is being thrown on God. At the very end of verse 8, he says, God is love. And then out of the essence of who God is, he begins to tell us some things about how this love is expressed. Listen in verse number 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son or begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is God's Word. Whoa. I say wow all the time, now I'm going to say whoa. That's good stuff. That is good news. That's gospel. That is the word euangelion. That's gospel. That's the essence of the gospel. That is, I would hang over that particular verse, the title of the love of God as it is expressed in the gospel. Now, as you should know by now, if you can remember from the days and weeks that we have been in this epistle, I've told you that this John is the same John that was used by God to write the Gospel of John. And in the Gospel of John, chapter number 3 and verse 16, we have probably one of the most famous verses of Scripture in all the Bible. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him would not perish but has everlasting life. That verse has often been called the Gospel in a nutshell by people. That's the essence of the Gospel. Well, when you get here to 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, it's like John decides, I have, God's given me a little bit more understanding, a little more revelation. Let me explain to you, let me extract for you the essence of this gospel that God has given humanity who is doomed in their sin, who is doomed and dead apart from the good news of the gospel. I mean, we ought to just all just rejoice if that's changed our life, if that's become a part of our life. We're no longer doomed. We have received the good news by the sovereign grace of God. Now, here he begins to unpack this. He begins to... Uh, it's, it's, it's really verse 10, verse 9, 10. It's like here he's given a theology of the gospel. He's unpacking some things. He's exposing some things about the gospel. He's expanding on some things here. So, 
Let's just walk through these verses. Let's walk through these verses and let's look at the love of God as it is expressed in the gospel. For God is love and in this is love. Okay. That God sent His only begotten Son that we might have life through Him. Okay, let's look at this passage and let's see what he's saying. The first major thing that just bombards my heart is verse number 9 where we see the what I would term the unique expression of God's love in the Gospel. The unique expression. Let me read verse 9 to you again. Okay? He says, in this love, in this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son or begotten Son, only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. We see the uniqueness of what is happening in the expression of God in the gospel that saves this good news. You see, the first thing as we walk through that particular verse, the first unique thing that we see about that first observation is we see that there is a unique union that has occurred. There is a unique union that has occurred. Theologically, we refer to it out of the Latin as the hypostatic union. (laughs) And oh my, what that is. Listen, in this, the love of God was what? It was made manifest among us. The love of God was made manifest among us. What is this? How was the love of God made manifest among us? How did it become that? This this is referring to that union of God in human flesh. That's how it was made. I'm going to show you this from the Scriptures in just a minute. This is how it was made manifest. Jesus, and we've got to understand this about Jesus. Jesus has two complete natures. One fully human, one fully divine. This is what is referred to as the hypostatic union. This this one person, the God-man. Jesus is not two persons. He's one person. And there's this union. And it's mysterious. There's mystery to it. That unites the divine and the human. We see this love of God being made manifest among us in the incarnation. You see it in the incarnation. Now, go back to John's Gospel. You've got to get into John's mind. Go back to the Gospel of John. Gospel of John, chapter number, number 1. I want you to see gospel, in John's Gospel, chapter number 1. I'm going to read... Um, beginning in verse 1 of that passage and, and go on down through verse 18. I just want you to see this, okay? Because here we see this, how He's manifested among us. We see this union. And, and it goes back to the beginning. Alright? In the beginning, verse 1. That, that is in arche in the Greek. That is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew bershit. From Genesis 1 1. 
I didn't cuss. That's just how you pronounce it, okay? That, that's where you go back, where you get that concept, all right? It's here. And it says, in the beginning, in our K, was the Word. And the Word was with God, Theos. And the Word was God, Theos. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not understood it or comprehended it. And then if you go down to verse 9, he goes on and he's talking about this word that was made manifest among us. He says, the true light which gives light to everything was coming into the world. That is being made manifest among us. Okay? So he uses that language in 1 John. And he goes on and he says, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own, his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the power or the right to become the children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Verse 14, here's the incarnation. And this word, this word that was in the beginning, this word that was with God, this word that was God, and the word became flesh. And dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the only begotten Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, before he because he was before me. From he from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace for the law was given through Moses and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ who goes on and says no one has ever seen God the only God who is at the father's side well he has made him known now what I want you to understand, that is how God was made. God had to be made manifest in human flesh. This was God's plan. This is how He was made manifest among us. This is part of the gospel. This is part of the good news. And I want you to understand, Jesus is... Now listen to me. You've got to follow me, okay? Jesus is the only perfect incarnation of God in human flesh. Now, Christians... We are sons and daughters of God by way of adoption, created in the image and likeness of God. Go back to Genesis 1, created in the image and likeness of Elohim. Elohim. The passage says, let us make man in our image. And that is expressed. Elohim is a concept that expresses the plurality of God. Now, in the New Testament, we have greater light. We have greater understanding of what that plurality of God must be. It is the fact that God is expressed in Father, the God, that God is expressed in the Son, and God is expressed in the Holy Spirit. There is a plurality of God. And the, 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 it's referring to, the, to the, the triune nature of the one God head. And that is a mystery. Okay? That is a mystery. There, listen, God is infinite and we're finite. And there's some things we're just not going to ever wrap our minds around. Okay? But the Elohim, He created us in His image. Now, I... 
personally think, I'm stepping back a minute, that the triune God created man in a triune image. It, it, not in the sense of we are deity, but that we are also triune in nature. As God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we are body, soul, and spirit. Okay, now that's just going in a different direction right now. But you are not, listen to me, here's what I want you to hear. You are not the image, okay? Okay, because before you were born again, you were in the image of Adam who was what? Who was fallen, who was twisted, who was depraved. And you must be born again to be restored into the image and likeness of God. But you are not the exact imprint of God as Jesus is, like the Bible talks about in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, or in 2 Corinthians chapter number 4. So he is, you, there's this unique union of God becoming man, okay? That is, God was made, mani- he was made manifest among us, the Son was made manifest among us, and it's unique also in the sense is that it's only one of a kind like this thing called the incarnation because it is mono. Gay, monogamy, okay, in the Greek. It, it's, it sounds like monogamy, and it can be that is related to that, but he is the only, the, when we refer to the Son, he is the only begotten. Now you got to get this about begetting, okay? Begetting is not an event in time. The fact that he is the only begotten Son is a statement of relationship in the Godhead, within Elohim. Don't make the mistake, okay, listen, don't make the mistake of thinking in human terms. Okay, it's not the same as when Isaac beget Jacob, okay? It's not quite the same concept. Christ did not become the Son. He is the eternal Son. He's always existed in the mystery of Elohim. Okay, always. He is, as, as it, in his deity, possesses every attribute of the pure God head. Now, at the same time, and please hear me, at the same time, you must be very, very careful, very careful that you do not confuse the attributes of his humanity with the attributes of his deity don't don't confuse his humanity with his deity because of the hypostatic union don't confuse the eternal attributes of the godhead his de- cuz listen to me his deity knows no bounds yet he is fully human and to be fully human is to be limited is god he's boundless no boundaries but in his human flesh, there was limitations. And what you think about it, you cut him, he bled. <laughs> okay? You cut him and he bled. Um, he, 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 he had a humanity about it. He had to. That's part of that mystery that we have in the only begotten. I like the way Paul puts it. Paul writes Timothy and he calls this God being made manifest among us. This, this, he calls it a mystery. Like what I'm telling you, it's mystery. Guys, you've got to come to the fact that you can't know everything. There is some mystery there, okay? There is some mystery, okay? You, you're not going to know until you see Him and are fully known by Him on some things, 
Okay, but Paul calls his mystery. Listen, I like the way Paul wrote Timothy in First Timothy, First Timothy, not Second, First Timothy, chapter number three, verse sixteen. This is what Paul told Timothy. He said, "And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness." Well, what is this mystery? He goes on and says, "God, Theos, God was manifested in the flesh." Okay, God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by the angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. In the textus receptus, which is used as the Greek translation for the King James Bible, the word is theos. In other majority text, it does not use theos, but it uses hos, which is he, which is referring in context to, there's no contradiction here, referring in context to the God who is the pillar and the foundation. So this God who is the pillar and the foundation, and the verses preceding that, regardless of the original text that you use, is referring to theos. It's referring to God. 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 KJV. New King, King James Version translates it the exact same way. God. God was manifested in the flesh. God being manifested in the flesh, as Paul told um, young Timothy, is the same language in essence with the term manifest as referring to 1 John where we read that He was made manifest among us. Okay? So, what we see in verse 9, first of all, what I want you to see, first thing, and I'm saying some things about this first thing, is that He was made manifest among us. It was a unique expression of the love of God. It's seen in the incarnation that God loved us so much that God sent His only begotten Son, mystery in the reality of Elohim. Who at a point in time became a man. To rescue other men. Okay? He really was the God-man. Totally unique expression. Totally unique expression. Um, And this unique expression is unequaled. Okay? It it is unequaled. um, Because... The only expression of love that gives life to dead sinners is the expression of He, God the Son, manifest in human flesh. It's the only one. That's why it says He might give us life. He might give us life. And oh my, that phrase at the end of verse 9, that He, this is who might give you life. Not some other facsimile, not some other other Jesus, this Jesus, this He might give you life. And not just, we're not talking, that word for life in the Greek, it's not bios, referring to biological life. It's not, that's not what it is. It's zeo. Okay? That's referring to true life, real life. I'm talking about, it's referring to spiritual life. It's talking about truly experiencing life. And it goes beyond the biological, though biology is incorporated in that. It's not the same as bios, okay? It's different. And this is a very, really living life up. And only in Him can you experience this life. It amazes me how so many dead sinners, dead in their sins and their trespasses, really think 
They're living their best life. But they're not. They're not. I listen to things that sometimes people say and it blows my mind. And then I realize, wait a minute, they're blinded. They can't see. But I remember a young lady once that was talking about how when she died, she said, I hope I go to hell. You know why she said that? Because she looks at religious people, and I say that in quotes, because there's a difference between religious people and truly saved people, but she looks at religious people in the church and say, I don't want to have nothing to do with that. But all my friends that are out drinking and partying and doing whatever they want to do, they really seem to be experiencing life. I'd rather experience and spend forever with that group of people than I had with those that they mistaken, and it's a mistake, mistaken for the church. Now guys, I know who I was and what I was before the Lord saved me at 16 years of age. I know where I was philosophically. I know that I was flirting with agnosticism and a form of deism. I know where I was as a, as a teenage boy. I lived purely and completely and totally for the fulfillment of my own sinful lust. That's all I cared for. That's the truth. That's reality. But then the Lord, the Lord graciously saved me. And I, I, I begin to see things in a different light. Not that Sins of the past don't ever tempt you in the present because they can. That's a fool if if you're not prepared or you'll be taken off your guard. But here's the thing. I saw things in a different light. I remember when I was in New Orleans on one occasion. I was down in the French quarters. I was walking uh, with several friends. I wasn't down there alone. I I, I didn't need to be down there alone. Um, I was down there with several of my, because it was after, it was late. They block off the street. A lot of things happen, <laughs> okay, when they block off the street. I was down there with some of my other buddies, and we were walking down, up and down in, in the Bourbon Street area. And I just began to weep. I began to see all the just debauchery, and I began to look at everything that was going on, and And it broke my heart. But here's why. This is what broke my heart. As I looked out, I saw who I would be if it were not for the grace of God. I would be right there among them. Right there among them. But He came and He gives life. He gave me life. So, we see that He was made manifest among us. And that life among us who? And i got to qualify this before we move on in this text. Who is us? 
Well, remember, you just don't attach meanings to things because this is what you think. You, you do it based on context. And the context of 1 John tells us who that us is. If you go over to chapter 5 and you look at, for example, in verses 11 and 12, you find out that he who has the Son is the one that has the zeal, has the life. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have the life. Okay, so it's not for everybody, but it's for believers only. Okay, they experience this life. So, we see this unique expression of God's love in that God's Son, only begotten Son, was made manifest among us. Number two, see that was just the first thing. I said about three things about that first thing. Okay. All right. Number two. We see the unconditional nature of this love that is expressed. And that's good news. You hear me? That's euangelion. That's good news. That's good news. That it is an unconditional love. Listen to the first part of verse number 10. In this is love. In this is agape. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He has loved us and sent His Son. Wow. Do you hear that? Do you hear that? That is amazing Grace. That is amazing love. That is wow factor to the tenth power. That is awesome. That the 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 part see part of the good news is that God in saving sinners, that love He has for us, it's an unconditional love. God's special love, His effectual calling is extended to believers not because we're anything desirable, but it comes purely based on the unmerited favor of God. That love comes because of God's good and sovereign pleasure. Not because He looked down there at You and said, Well, now I think I think Ken's a pretty good old guy. I'll go die for him. No, he didn't do that because when he looked at Ken, he saw him as a rotten scoundrel. Okay, wasn't based on anything in us. Listen, I like the way Paul describes it in Romans chapter number five. In Romans chapter number 5, beginning in verse 6, listen to this. Oh my goodness. Listen to these words. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For, the, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God chose His agape. Shows His love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died. You hear that? While we were still rotten to the core. Rebels by nature. 
While we were undone, while we were unholy, while we were unrighteous, while we were sinful, while we were yet dead in our sins and in our trespasses, while we were yet powerless to do anything. You hear that? Power. We were totally depraved, to give you a theological term. That's what that powerless is about. Powerless to do anything. Powerless to look up to God. Powerless to call out to God. Powerless to see and do anything right. Powerless. When we were hopeless cases within ourselves, Christ died for sinners. Hallelujah. That is good news. And it is not attached to anything in you so much as it is in God. I like the passage that Linda read this morning. I'd already thought about reading that passage to you, and I am again, because I want you to hear the unconditionality of the Gospel. Okay? Listen again in, in Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1 is a very deep passage. Ephesians 1 deals with a very high mystery. It's a mystery that people try. Here's again, it's another one of these mysteries that people try to explain. And listen, when you try to explain this mystery, you fall off a cliff. Okay? I got a little sign in my office, and somebody gave me that sign because I used to say this all the time about this particular issue here. It is what it is. You say, well, what issue are you talking about? It's predestination. And what he's about to say does not predicate on anything in you. It's all in God. Don't sit there and try to compute it. It is what it is. Now listen to the language. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Here it is. In love. That's in agape. In love. He predestined us. In what? In love. What an arbitrary choice. It was in love. A love that was demonstrated at the death of Jesus. But anyway, in love, He predestined us for what? For adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of, the, of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of His will mystery of His will according to His purposes which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will so that we who are of the first hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also were included when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel, the euangelion of your salvation, and believe, paistos, in Him, and were sealed with a promised Holy Spirit. I'll, I'll stop right there, but what I want you to hear is that His love upon you predates 
all your foolishness. You hear me? It predates all your foolishness. That's a good thing. That's a good, that's called very good. That, listen, God chose to love Peter before Peter ever denied him. God chose to love David, a man after God's own heart, before he ever rebelled against the Lord and the way that he did. And God chose to love us before. It's not attached to who we are. It's attached to who He is. And that's good. Because listen, in America, we belittle the Gospel, making it so man-centered and so dependent on us, when that's no good news at all. It depends upon God. For if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, all things are new. Very next verse in that passage in Corinthians is all of this. All this what? Being in Christ. All of this is from God. Soli Deo Gloria. (laughs) Wow. 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 The unconditionality of God in His love is seen also in a, in a, in a chapter that people try to just block out of their brains in, in a chapter that uh, is really troubling to some people who try to so hard to, to walk through the logic of it. Um, it. Matter of fact, Romans 9 was a pivotal moment in my journey with God in which I had to learn to let go of all this man-centered foolishness and I bow to my sovereign God. Okay. In Romans 9, he talks about the unconditionality of God's choice. And there it's talking about election. And he talks about how it was God's choice that He chose Isaac and not Ishmael. It was God's choice that He chose Jacob and not Esau. And then there's that very troubling phrase, Very troubling phrase. Jacob I loved. Esau I hated. What you going to do with that? (laughs) Well, first of all, let me tell you, it's not that God did not love Esau. Okay? That's not exactly what they're saying. That phrase is actually a Jewish idiom. And and I just, let me tell you this before I tell you what I got to tell you about it. But Jesus utilized it. And Jesus, the, in the Gospels, because most of us, God knew most of us wouldn't understand Jewish idioms. He, 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 he puts the same account with Jesus from two different angles. In one case, Jesus said, and here's the Jewish idiom, unless you hate your father and hate your mother and hate your son and hate your own life, so to speak, then you can't be my follower. You're familiar with that? Yeah. Well, in Matthew's Gospel, you have the same account. But in there, he says, if any of you loves mother or father more than me, loves his own life more than me, he cannot be my disciple. So what is it? In Jewish, Jewish thought, to love one more than the other was to love one and hate the other. And in God's choice, God, God's, God's choice... He chose to love Jacob in, a, in, in this way. Now, I once knew of a, well, I read, didn't know, 
of a guy that told his pastor, he had a great problem with that passage that says, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. He said, I just don't understand how God could say I hate Esau. Or in this case, say I love him less. Well, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, Esau wasn't an innocent man, okay? Esau, the Bible talks about, he was a very immoral man, okay? I understand how God could say that about him. And the pastor said to him, my, I, I'm troubled by that passage too. And he said, my, my problem is not in the fact that he hated Esau. I can see that. My problem is in the fact that he said, I love Jacob. That scoundrel that he was, because he was deceptive and he was a liar. Yet God chose to love him. All I'm saying to you, in the mystery of all of that, is that God's choices are unconditional. And that is a good thing. That is a very good thing. That is euangelion. You ought to know one Greek word. <laughs> that is euangelion. That is good news. Good news. Wow. Wow. So, we've seen the uniqueness of this expression of love. We see that in how He was manifested among us. We've seen the unconditional nature of this love that is expressed. The fact that He has loved us, not that we have loved Him. And now, let me just end by quickly pointing out the unilateral seal of this love expressed. He goes on at the rest of verse 10, He says, and sent His Son to be the propitiation. I might do a little dance. Send His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Wow. 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 This is how, in verse 9, we can receive this life. Because understand, let me me explain something to you about the unconditional nature of God. When I talk about God's unconditionality, uh, the unconditionality of God's love, this does not mean, hear me, does not mean He sweeps our sins under the rug. It doesn't mean God sits up on heaven and just says, "Well, well, let bygones be bygones. Oh well, let's just move on. No, your sin has to be dealt with. Jeremiah the prophet says this, that there is no sin that goes unpunished. None. None. And you see, just as God is, theos imi agape, just as God is love, God is also holy. God is also just. God is also wrath. And matter of fact, all of God's attributes are filtered through the attribute of His holiness. That's what separates Him and makes Him unique from the false devils and demon gods of pagan humanity. Now, that's why He had to become the propitiation for our sins. You see, this is saying Christ is our substitute by becoming our propitiation. That word propitiation in the original, it means to appease. He appeased the Father's wrath. How so? He became to be the propitiation. To propitiate that sin means that He bore the wrath of those sins because the wrath of God, Romans chapter 1, was being revealed against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of man. God would not be God if He did not 
execute justice and display wrath upon sin, he would no longer be holy God. He would be a pushover like so many of us. But he deals with it. He sent the eternal Son to become the suffering servant who became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Now, I'm not going to cover the extent of that propitiating work. We did that back in 1 John chapter 2. But He doesn't propitiate the sins of everybody, but He propitiates the sins of anybody that will call on Christ. And just let that be. Because that's what it is. Alright? Now, here's what I would say to you. Saints who have been saved by Christ, you ought to leave here with a hop, skip, and jump in you because of what God has done for us. We ought to leave here rejoicing greatly because in this, the love of God was manifest among us that God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might through Him live. Not that we first loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son into the world to become the propitiation for our sin. Wow. Praise be to His glorious grace. It is rich. It is rich. Then I would say also, if there is anyone among us who has not been made alive, who has not experienced being born of God, who has not experienced the euangelion, that has not experienced Zao, that has not experienced our Christ, that has not come by faith alone, in Christ alone. Because this is what the Word alone teaches. If that's you and you have not, call upon His name. Stop looking within yourself. Stop trying to see what newfangled next religious thing you can do to ease your conscience and sort of try to deal and quiet your sins. Come to God in Christ and experience the riches of His grace. Rest in Him. Repent that's turned from yourself. And turn to Him. That's where repentance really starts in turning from your self-sufficiency and turning from your self and turning to Him. And as you turn from yourself and you turn to Christ, you spend, as Martin Luther says, the rest of your life. It's a life of repentance dealing with the sin in your life. Come to Him. Come to Him. This is the Word of the Lord. I'm going to ask every head to be bowed and every eye to be closed. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet. I'm going to ask Gary to go. Uh, come up front. I'm going to ask Angie to go to the piano. They'll sing in a hymn of response. And so whatever your need is, you respond.